Today on CityCast Denver. When someone mentions Dr. Bronner's, a very specific image pops into my head. I see that big blue soap bottle covered in paragraphs of tiny white text sitting on the edge of a grimy bathtub. It's a fixture in every punk house I've ever lived in, crashed at, or played a show in the basement of. But here's the thing. Dr. Bronner's isn't just the soap choice of the counterculture. It's also a multi-million dollar company. And the Bronner family is using some of that money to fund a campaign to legalize and regulate psychedelics right here in Colorado. So it's finally time to read the fine print. This is part three of investigative journalist Chris Walker's look at the push to legalize psychedelics in Colorado. If you haven't heard parts one and two of Ballot Trip yet, I recommend going back and listening in order to get the full story. Today is Monday, August 1st, 2022. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. One afternoon back in April, I stopped by the Cap Hill Trader Joe's to grab some lunch. I was making my way to the store entrance when I heard a signature gatherer calling out to shoppers. You know, the kinds that always seem to be posted up outside of TJ's. Excuse me, sir, do you have a minute? So this was not surprising in itself. What did surprise me was when the woman asked if I was interested in supporting natural medicines. This was the first petitioner I'd encountered for Initiative 58, the Natural Medicine Health Act, one of the two psychedelic ballot initiatives we've been discussing for the last couple of weeks. This is the one backed by New Approach Pack, which would decriminalize certain psychedelics and set up regulations for guided mushroom sessions in Colorado. Another campaign from a group called Decriminalize Colorado stops at decriminalizing natural psychedelics. And back when I encountered that petitioner gathering signatures for the new approach initiative, it was still four months until the deadline. She was on top of it. So I asked her how she got involved with the new approach campaign, and I got a curious answer. Unfortunately, I didn't get our conversation on tape, but she told me that she wasn't a volunteer. In fact, she was a paid circulator with a Utah-based company called Landslide Political. And according to campaign finance reports, New Approach paid over $2.3 million to Landslide Political to collect enough scribbles to get the initiative on November's ballot. And it seems to have paid off. The campaign turned in over 200,000 signatures in June, well ahead of the deadline. And on July 21st, Colorado's Secretary of State's office announced that the campaign had officially qualified for the ballot. So you're definitely voting on Initiative 58 in November. But that's a lot of money to spend to qualify, especially considering that the Decrim Colorado campaign is still scrambling to collect signatures using only volunteers. So where is New Approach's money coming from? Well, you may be surprised, or maybe not at all, to learn the identity of the main financier behind the proverbial curtain. Hello, I'm David Bronner, Cosmic Engagement Officer here at Dr. Bronner's. I'm here to talk about our new Heal Soul campaign, all about psychedelic medicines and therapy. We're facing epidemics of depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction. That's right, Dr. Bronner's Magical Soaps. And now is the company's CEO, David Bronner, who is the grandson of the Dr. Bronner. 
David is one of the heavyweights in today's so-called psychedelic renaissance. And in 2020, vis-a-vis -vis New Approach Pack, Dr. Bronner's helped pass Measure 109 in Oregon, which legalized access to medical mushrooms in that state. And that measure is also the precursor to the Natural Medicine Health Act, the one you can expect to vote on this fall. So by examining Oregon's experience with Measure 109, could we catch a glimpse of Colorado's psychedelic future? For CityCast Denver, I'm your guest host, Chris Walker, and this is episode three of our four-part miniseries, Ballot Trip. When Oregon voters passed Measure 109 in 2020, it was a big deal, a first-of-its-kind program to allow people to legally take mushrooms under the guidance of licensed facilitators. So nearly two years later, there must be lots of data to learn from, right? You might be asking yourself, who exactly is qualified to be a licensed professional for something like this? It kind of feels like a new job I haven't heard of before. And you're right. That's actually something the state is trying to figure out. And right now, we are in a two-year development period. A period that is supposed to conclude in January 2023, when the Oregon Health Authority plans to accept license applications. Getting that program ready has been a process, as I learned from one of the reporters who's most closely documented it, someone who also happens to be a fellow fellow of mine in the Ferris UC Berkeley Psychedelic Reporting Fellowship. I'm Olivia Goldtill. I'm an investigative reporter at STAT, uh, the health and science publication. Olivia has been covering many of the key discussions that have taken place as Oregon tries to get things up and running. There's the Psilocybin Advisory Board, uh, that is made up of volunteers. You know, anyone could uh, apply to be on it. This board is made up of doctors, psychologists, and experts in natural medicines and harm reduction, all of whom were appointed by Oregon's governor. They're the ones tasked with creating regulations for Oregon's medical mushrooms program. And then they present their findings to the Oregon Health Authority, and that's who ultimately decides. If voters in Colorado approve the new approach initiative on this fall's ballot, the process will look similar. Governor Polis would appoint an advisory board. And in our case, that board would make recommendations to the Department of Regulatory Agencies. And speaking of recommendations, here are all the things that the Oregon board has had to consider over the past two years. Who qualifies to become a facilitator? How do you ensure fair access to psilocybin services? Who will provide the mushrooms? And who will test those mushrooms? And one of the trickiest considerations, how to train prospective facilitators. It's really, really interesting because I think everyone has good intentions, but you know, this is so new and it will inevitably involve compromises. So the big theme that is difficult in Oregon and comes up with the licensing program, but also comes up in other areas, is that there is conflict between safety and equity. So, you know, the, the bill was created to be uh, very equitable. Ideally, people who want to become licensed as facilitators should be able to receive the necessary training without traveling too far or facing any kind of professional repercussions or breaking the bank. But then um, if you create safety parameters, often what that does is put limits in place that potentially hurt equity. Here's one example. 
So they decided to do uh, 120 hours of learning in Oregon for training and 40 hours of practical training. Quite a few people I spoke to were worried that this was too short. I I know there's been some barbed criticism there that it's like, well, hey, that's almost the same amount of time that it takes to be licensed as a real estate agent in Oregon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, You know, several people I spoke to said, it needs to be two or three times that. But at the same time, there's both worries that, you know, in-person learning will limit access and then hurt equity for those in more rural areas. So it's a very difficult balancing act, basically. And then there's the price tag. Those wishing to become licensed facilitators could be on the hook for up to $20,000. Those interested in undergoing a psilocybin session themselves may pay $1,000 a pop. And in the vein of medical marijuana, these sessions are not likely to be covered by health insurance. That's all despite Measure 109's stated goals of equity and accessibility. Just to complicate that balancing act even more, the safety side of the equation is getting much more attention thanks to a bombshell podcast called Cover Story that started coming out last November. You know, shamans or people sleeping with their clients or whomever is like, this is an old story. Oh, this has been going on, you know, since the beginning. The investigative series from Symposia and New York Magazine details how a few bad actors in the underground psychedelic space, as well as in above-ground clinical trials, allegedly used their positions as guides and facilitators to take advantage of clients under the influence. Olivia says Oregon's Psilocybin Advisory Board has struggled with these revelations. Training is valuable, but it's only one half of what has to happen. It's not simply a matter of telling people, please don't commit sexual assault, that is bad, (laughs) Um, even though obviously that training is useful. There also has to be repercussions for bad actors. And I did speak to people, you know, from the Psilocybin Advisory Board who said that they felt that conversations about what the repercussions would be and how that would work and who would have responsibility hadn't had much attention and it's kind of an awkward subject of conversation. I mean, the Oregon Health Authority will be giving out licenses and will, you know, have the ability to remove those licenses, but those aren't the same as, you know, the standard mental health professional licenses. And so it's something of an unanswered question. And Olivia says that highlights an even bigger issue in Oregon. Under this program, do these guided mushroom sessions constitute mental health treatment? So the people who started the the ballot originally, Tom and Sherry Eckert, they are psychologists, but very intentionally did not want the kind of magic mushroom use in Oregon to be within the medical system. As in the same problem-plagued medical system we're all used to, with doctors who need to recommend specialists, specialists who may or may not work with your health insurance. You know what I'm talking about. And they wanted to create a new model. But at the same time, one of the main ways it was promoted was as a way to treat depression and trauma, you know, which are medical conditions. And so I think there's a fear among some board members that the public as a whole maybe thinks that they are getting a medical treatment. And, you know, it's been kind of promoted to them for its medical uses, even if it's not strictly speaking medical. And Olivia says you can hear that in the carefully chosen words of board members. 
you know, uh, someone else said to me, you know, it's not therapy, but it's therapeutic. Even within uh, the board members, there's some disagreement. Uh, Tom Ackett said to me, the use of of magic mushrooms to treat depression is safe and effective. The science has shown that. And it's like, well, Western science, you know, is a very particular system and there are very particular ways of proving something. You know, that's what science is. It's following certain methods. And you have to have a certain number of studies to say that it's safe and effective. And we're not there yet for effectiveness. And Olivia's right. Look, substances like psilocybin do show early promise. But all research into psychedelics was shut down from the late 60s until only recently, meaning we're still playing catch-up. I know it's exciting, but researchers have only just begun to reevaluate these substances. So I think in, in a lot of ways it's drawing on science and medicine that maybe isn't fully there yet, but with the assumption that it will be. That was Olivia's dog chiming in. In agreement? We'll never know. Anyway, what Olivia just said is important. If Oregon has taught us anything, the reality is that what happened there on Election Day in 2020 was just the beginning of a difficult road with many tough discussions and decisions made along the way. If Colorado voters decide to go down that same road, the state will be in for a similarly complex process. These issues are really complicated, and I don't envy the people making these decisions. They're difficult. Almost the more you talk about it, the more kind of caveats and potential issues you uncover. After a short break... I mean, we just knew that Colorado was going to be the next state. I mean, that was just, it was clear. The man whose company bankrolled Oregon's initiative and who hopes to pass a similar one here in Colorado. Remember in the beginning of this episode when I mentioned Dr. Bronner's, the soap company, and their cosmic engagement officer? And I actually got arrested digging up the DEA's lawn in 2009, planting hemp seeds. That's David Bronner. And actually, he was arrested again back in May, this time while protesting at the DEA headquarters for end-of-life patients to be able to use psilocybin. Direct action is kind of his thing, and you might say he's quite committed to the cause of psychedelics. Bronner has been advocating to end the war on drugs for a long time, first with hemp and cannabis, now with other substances. How did you and Dr. Bronner's The Company get interested in psychedelics advocacy? Yeah, well, um, I guess uh, I guess my big initiation was after college. I was in Amsterdam in 1995, and this all like kind of coincided with some huge psychedelic experiences. Bronner says that during his experiences, he contemplated many of the things his grandfather, the Dr. Bronner, said and wrote, including the messages he printed in impossibly small font on the company's soap bottle labels. I am soap maker master chemist Dr. Emmanuel H. Bonham. I swore to the God within me and within every living being on this planet, I become the servant of God. Um, and none of that made sense growing up, but instantly in, in this experience of medicine, you know, basically immediately understood that my granddad was right. Yep. But yeah, that's kind of the origin story and, and, and basically dedicating my life in part to ending the drug war and integrating psychedelics and and cannabis. Bronner and his company had a big breakthrough when they teamed up with New Approach Pack to help pass Measure 109 in Oregon. Which I guess kind of sets up Colorado. I mean, we just knew that Colorado was gonna be the next 
state. I mean, that was just, it was clear. Because Oregon had proved that voters could be convinced to pass a state-regulated program to access psilocybin. Most of the psychedelically naive population is not comfortable in a decriminalized context uh, availing themselves of psychedelic healing. And, you know, for instance, our, like our parents' generation, you can't say, oh, we've decriminalized mushrooms and here you go. They need, um, you know, a, like a therapeutic container and, and you know, all, all the things in a, in a well-designed program like that. That's the kind of safe entry point like most of the population need. In other words, a safe, familiar environment, like a therapist's office. I'm trying to imagine my parents being convinced to try psilocybin, for example. And I have to say, I think Bronner has a point. But as we touched upon in episode one, other psychedelics advocates in Colorado worry that rushing to create a therapeutic model will inevitably mean commercializing psychedelics. And when you look at the money that Bronner and others are pouring into new approach pack, it does make sense to wonder whether any big time investors expect some kind of big time returns. New approach pack, who are the other funders besides Dr. Bronner's? Um, well, we're, we're one of the lead ones. And, you know, on that, I would say, generally speaking, new approach is, is a center of gravity that's not industry dominated. It's philanthropists who aren't, you know, by and large, are, are not engaged in the industry. There's more just drug policy reformers. According to IRS filings, Dr. Bronner's is one of New Approach's biggest contributors over the past few years, to the tune of over 7 million bucks. And while there are some reputable philanthropists in there, there's plenty of industry money too, from Scott's, for example, the Miracle Grow Company, as well as a private equity fund that owns the website Leafly and Tilray, one of Canada's largest cannabis companies. If you tuned in last week, you'll remember that many activists in Colorado see the cannabis industry as more of a cautionary tale for psychedelics, not something that should be recreated. Bronner says he agrees with that. As far as the, the criticism of cannabis policy, I mean, that's, you know, it's real. It's, it's really unfortunate to see how the industry has unfolded. And, and so, yeah, it's just making sure that we are thinking about the, you know, what does the industry look like on the other side and learn, learn the lessons from cannabis. And he thinks that the Natural Medicine Health Act reflects those lessons, even if, as he admits, you know, there's unfortunate missteps in the beginning. Missteps like submitting early drafts of the initiative to the state before consulting with key Colorado-based activists who'd already been working in this space for years. But Bronner points out the new approach eventually revised its ballot language. The drafting process was open to everybody. I mean, mm -hmm. it, was, it was a wide open process and reflects a lot of really good input. And Bronner insists that the version of the initiative that will go before voters reflects concerns from activists and community members. The language has changed a lot from early drafts. That included providing subsidies to help BIPOC or other marginalized people pay for training and services, mandating indigenous representation on any potential advisory panel, limiting the number of healing centers a single person or business can own, and directing the state to set up a system in which people can apply to seal criminal records related to past psychedelic convictions. But in spite of all these changes, many activists in Colorado still oppose the new approach initiative. Unfortunately, at this point, there's just a lot of paranoia about the intention. And, you know, and I really see the policy, especially in Colorado, as like the most equitable drug policy that's ever been put forward. The actual policy that results from this is going to satisfy everybody. Everyone's going to be psyched and 
realize that their worst kind of case scenarios and fears are, are not going to play out. And it's going to be as, as, as we all hope. Contrast that hope with reality. As I mentioned before, the Oregon Health Authority is still sorting out the basics of how its program will work. But on top of that, members of Oregon's advisory board have been accused of conflicts of interest. There have been disagreements, resignations, and now even local efforts to opt out of their program before it even goes online. So the question is, could things go differently in Colorado? In our final installment next week, we'll take a deep dive into the other campaign trying to land a psychedelics initiative on November's ballot, Decriminalize Colorado. Again, this is the grassroots community-led initiative. I mean, like we're doing this, no one is paying us to be here right now. We aren't canvassing at $25 an hour. You know, again, 61 was a reaction to the uh, Natural Medicine Health Act. Even so, Decrim Colorado is still part of a decentralized movement known as Decriminalized Nature, which has had successful and surprising wins across the country. And when we finally brought this up to a vote in Ann Arbor, um, city council passed the decriminalization 11 to 0. It was unanimous. We were completely flabbergasted by how much support the movement had. But will the Colorado campaign muster enough signatures to make the ballot? Because it's coming down to the wire, folks. The deadline is next Monday. We'll wrap all that up on our final episode of this four-part miniseries, Ballot Trip. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. We hope you enjoyed this third episode of Ballot Trip, Chris Walker's look at the future of psychedelics in Colorado. The fourth and final episode is coming soon. Support for the reporting in this series comes from the Ferris UC Berkeley Psychedelic Reporting Fellowship. Additional music by Loyalty Freak Music. Story editing in this series is done by Anne-Marie Awad. If you enjoy listening and hanging out with us every morning, tell a friend. We're on like every podcast platform and the best way to enjoy these things is to listen together. So share a link to the show or the newsletter and let's build this community. As always, I'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. My most engaged tweet of the last two weeks was reminiscing about Cherry Creek North having a Burger King. People just really were feeling that as I was. You know what I miss? Burger King. (laughs) In a neighborhood that you couldn't be caught dead talking about Burger King in now. (laughs)